0: Hi, I'm Greg Thompson. After years of conducting interviews, I've found that when I can sit with friends one-on-one, the deepest questions of our spirituality and who we are as humans, and what we're discerning to be our purpose in life, just naturally rise to the surface. However, having recently come out as a gay man myself, people are often surprised that I still have faith at all. Being gay and being spiritual seem like a conflict of interest to others, but not to me. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Maria Machansky, Maria studied theology and women's and gender studies at St. Louis University, and now she studies with me at Vanderbilt Divinity School, pursuing a master's in divinity with a focus on gender and sexuality. She was born and raised Catholic and still loosely identifies as Catholic, and Maria identifies as both a queer woman and as pansexual. My conversation with Maria was enlivening. She is someone who loves ritual and community at the heart of her faith practice. Finding a spiritual home in a setting where she can be completely out has been a struggle and continues to be, but Maria doesn't take no for an answer and keeps looking for a path forward. Let's take a listen. So um, where I'd like to begin is kind of breaking down some terminology. Um, You identify as queer woman and as pansexual. Can you explain those terms for us and also what they mean specifically to you?
1: Sure. Um... So pansexual has been explained to me a couple of different ways. And uh, the way that I liked the most when I started identifying as pan or pansexual um, is that I'm attracted to a personality first, and that's regardless of someone's sex or gender makeup or expression or identification. So I'm attracted to folks who identify as men, as women, as trans men, as trans women, as non-binary people, um, all across all of the spectrums really. Mm. Um, And then I identify as a queer woman, um, usually because that's a more palatable term for people than pansexual. Mm. Um, It's something that people have heard more often than pan and that they grasp a little bit better. Um, so queer for me, again, kind of embraces this fluidity and this kind of, um, I don't want to say generalistic, but, um, this element of my sexuality that I'm really attracted to folks of all identifications on Hmm. the sex spectrum, the gender spectrum and the sexuality spectrum. Um, and I do identify as a cis woman, so I use she, her pronouns, and that's why I identify as a queer woman.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Um I think the, the 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 mistake or the misconception maybe is that you hear the word queer and you immediately think gay. Right. And and so that's that's helpful. I mean, is that something that you've had to kind of explain for people before, or like have you noticed that?
1: Yeah. Um. So I tend to avoid almost ever describing myself with the term gay. Um. Because I have a problem with using the kind of male signifier as a universal. So we often, you know, in general, um, writing and language for a long time, we were taught to use he when when we mean everyone. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, often people use gay when they mean a whole bunch of different folks who are attracted to people of the same gender or sex or of a variety of genders or sexes. And... Um, yeah, it kind of erases lesbians. It erases queer women. Um, so I avoid that term most of the time. Sometimes it's the only way to get across to people what you mean. <laughs> um, I remember when I was coming out to my mom, I was like, she did not understand what I was saying, and I was like, I'm gay, mom. <laughs> and then she got it, you know, but, um, yeah, I do think that they kind of get conflated. and so queer. Helps me to acknowledge the sides of me that are attracted to people of opposite not which I don't really think that opposite genders exist, but yeah. of opposite genders or sexes
0: okay hmm. so in um in like your own academic writing, for instance, what um I find this is a challenge for me when I write about. The LGBT community is. Do I use the phrase LGBT? Do I use LGBTQIA? Do I use queer? Like, what is, um, what works best for you? Kind of with all that in mind.
1: I've gone back and forth. Um, I tend to use LGBTQIA plus. Okay. Um. Sometimes I just use queer. Sometimes I use them interchangeably. Um, queer gets tricky because not everybody in the LGBTQIA plus alphabet soup community wants to be known by the moniker queer. Um, and I want to respect that. So I usually, in the introduction of a paper, um, or an article or whatever I'm writing, I set my parameters. I say, when I use this word or this phrase or this acronym, I'm referring to all of these people. But for the scope of this paper, I will be using X phrase, or I'll be using these two interchangeably. Yeah.
0: That's cool. That's something I recently landed on in a paper was like, I realized I was misappropriating, I was using the word, L- I was using the phrase LGBT for this paper as a whole. And then I realized I was almost exclusively talking about my gay male perspective and i had to check that i was like wait okay disclaimer footnote on the front page of the paper <laughs> like this is my perspective there are parts of this that may appeal to the broader community lgbtqia plus but and i will use that phrase when necessary but here's kind of my social location mm-hmm. here yeah i think it's uh i think it's really helpful to kind of talk about these things because like it's it's something i'm still like learning about the about the LGBTQIA plus community Mm -hmm. myself, like, that you enter into that, like, that I feel like I've entered into after coming out just a couple years ago. I'm still learning. And, um, and it's just, like, a constant process and unfolding. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how did you, how did you come to identify with these terms queer and pansexual? So,
1: (laughs) Um, I identified as a straight woman until fall of 2014. Um, It was my junior year in college. I'm pretty sure everybody else in my life except for me knew that I was some form of queer. Um, in the summer of 2014, I was working through some personal crises and, um, coming back from studying abroad and dealing with some changing friendships in my life, and I also met the person who is now my husband. So um, I was really starting to think more about my identifications and relationship to a lot of other people and to really rethink through my sexuality um, and realize that even though I was now in a monogamous relationship with a male-identifying person, um, that I had for a very long time felt attraction towards women as Mm. well. Um, And as I started to think through that, I thought through, well, what does this mean? Because my partner is male identified and is a trans man. Um, And I will absolutely say that just because my partner is a trans man did not make me queer. Mm. That needs to be said there. You know, that would be a real disservice to his identity. Mm. Um, But encountering him and having conversations about queerness and sexuality helped me to feel comfortable enough to acknowledge an identity that had been sitting within me for a while that had not come to the surface and that year I encountered a few mentors who identified as queer and as pan and they helped give language to what I was working through um and so those identities felt right to me you know growing up I had been accused of being a lesbian or accused of being queer in a derogatory way. Mm. Um, But I had never found an identity that kind of really fit the span of my attractions. Mm. Um, And I think I was afraid of it for so long that I avoided it. I said, I'm the best ally in the world, but I'm definitely not (laughs) queer. But lo and behold, everybody... Um, (laughs) Yeah, so that was that was during my junior year in undergrad, and I kind of dove right into a coming-out process. You know, I told my parents, and I told a lot of my friends.
0: Um, what community did you find was the most accepting of who you were at that time?
1: Yeah. Um, I found a lot of comfort in my relationship with my partner, but I needed external places to process that. Um, I was really, really involved in my college campus ministry office and I was so fortunate to have a few mentors there who were very affirming um, particularly I had one mentor who went on to uh, officiate my wedding who, I kind of treated as my private therapist when he really wasn't. But I spent several hours crying and laughing on his the couch in his office just talking through a lot of it with him and, and getting a lot of support and feeling a lot of affirmation. And um, he had a way of really letting you kind of tear apart your, your schemas for how the world worked and making you feel simultaneously like it was all going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and just – you know, as soon as you start coming out, you find out that there's all these queer people around you that you didn't know were queer, or at least that's how it was in my experience. Um, so, yeah, there were several students who that very same year either went through their own coming out process or weren't super public about the fact that they were queer, but didn't hide it either. And as I came out, I would say, you know, me too. <laughs> like, we're here. Yeah. Um, And I was friends with them and a lot of other for a lot of other reasons, whether we were involved in campus ministry together or we were part of the same learning community in undergrad. Um, And so it was I had kind of this experience of discovering community and the community that I already had.
0: Mm. That's great. What um, your your uh, campus ministry organization, what denomination was that? It was Catholic. So
1: it was the university campus ministry organization. And is at a Jesuit university. So I'm definitely a little more on the liberal end of the spectrum. Um, but the office itself of campus ministry at my undergrad was a really varied um, and well-curated bunch of folks who approached Catholicism, politics, a lot of things from a lot of different vantage points, um, but really came together around care for students mm. um, and you know, it varies from year to year, but while I was there, it was such a beautiful and rich place. Um, I wound up being an intern there my senior year and working there. Uh, and it was really formative for me. So it was a great place.
0: Yeah. What, um, you know, it's, it's, it's risky kind of coming out in your, in your denomination, I think for, for folks, especially in in Catholic settings. Mm -hmm. Um, what, how much did you know going into that conversation with this mentor of yours? And like, and how did you, how, like, did you know it would be a safe space going in? Or did you kind of discover that in the process of coming out?
1: Um Patrick was already a safe space for me in general in my life. Um I went to him with like all of my problems. And I'm the kind of person who... um if, I've, if I consider you a mentor, I kind of just dump all of my stuff at your feet, and I say, deal with it. So he was going to deal with it whether he wanted to or not, but he, one of his roles specifically is to work with queer students on campus. Um, he has done a lot of work with the Rainbow Alliance on campus, which they don't have an LGBTQ center, um, but they have a Rainbow Alliance, which is a student group where – um, queer students can come for safe space and where allies can join them in conversation I think they meet usually once a week um, and so it's more events. of a
0: gathering space than like a student organization
1: it is or- a student organization okay. but it's it's like a gay straight alliance okay. um, and so he's done explicitly in his role as a campus minister work with them okay. um, and he was really instrumental in getting um, the campus ministry office, they, had what, they have what are called Christian life communities, which are, like, small groups of students that meet once a week and talk about um, aspects of their faith or the Bible or, you know, it's usually five or six students that come together. He was really responsible for getting exclusively queer CLCs, Christian life communities, implemented in their programming Um so they've got i he had some markers. <laughs> I was like, yeah. "I think you'd be okay <laughs> i part of part of why I was so vocal and out and loud and proud um is because I was dating someone who's male identified, so we often pass We pass as a cis hetero non queer couple when we both identify as queer. My partner is trans um and so it's very easy for me to talk about well, I'm you know. Engaged, my boyfriend, my fiance. He and nobody questions anything, and they think, oh, she just has short hair, you know. <laughs> um, so it was. It's a little easier for me with folks who might not be affirming that. That just never comes up. Their suspicions just remain suspicions. Sure.
0: So uh, does that education piece then become more important for you mm-hmm. when you're talking to When you're talking to people?
1: Yeah, it's been. It has been somewhat of, it's been an evolution in my relationship with my husband, I think, because we've both um, kind of altered or shifted around our identities a little bit in terms of how out we are, Um, and we've both come to a space where, in almost all contexts now, we're unapologetically out, you know, we're not interested in playing those games where we just de- try to decide where we're out and where we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, it's a lot about uh, trans visibility and he passes. So unless he tells people they don't know, <laughs> you know, um, and w- earlier when we were dating, it was a little more tenuous. He was a little more concerned about passing. And so um, it, The education piece came for me in trying to discern if I was educating people and being authentic or if I was trying to prove myself. You know, if I was trying to say, Mm -hmm. I'm queer enough. Look, look at me. Let me tell you, I have a trans partner. Let me tell you, I'm queer. I really am. Or if I was doing it because people needed to be educated that not all queer couples look the same, Mm -hmm. that you can look cis or cisgender or, or straight passing but you're not you know that was important for me
0: i think that's important for a lot of people when they come out is that there's this i think there's this temptation at least from my experience um to come out to people that you think will be affirming um almost as like a um kind of an ego boost Mm -hmm. because often if if you think they'll be affirming it kind of becomes this like oh i'm so excited for you and like tell me more and like and um and sometimes like that's not necessary at that moment sometimes it's kind of bringing it it's more it's it's becoming more about you than it is about whatever the situation is at hand right um and 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 based on what you said you know maybe the education piece is more important or maybe it's not you know maybe it's not something you need to talk about that day but yeah so um so coming out in Um. a Catholic campus ministry that's um, that's not a typical experience probably mm-hmm. um, what what did that ultimately mean for you and um, and your faith?
1: it was I will say it was a gift and it was a curse um, I was so fortunate to be placed in such a unique campus ministry office at that position in my life um, when I first came out I was kind of of this conviction well I'm not going to leave the church I'm going to stay and I'm going to change things and I can do that and about a year year and a half later um, my partner and I came to this breaking point where we were like we cannot stay here anymore this is too hard um, and and Having that office was a really great opportunity to explore those kind of edges of my faith while I was wrestling with the kind of big C Catholicism. You know, Mm -hmm. I got to explore niche Catholic spaces, um, working with students, you know, whether it's going to mass or not, I'm working with Catholic students in context related to Catholic spirituality or Jesuit spirituality at a Jesuit university. Um, and that was really important to me. But it was a curse in that I, I thought, okay, this is possible. And then I left, <laughs> you know, then I graduated. And I was, you know, I, when I graduated from undergrad, I thought, okay, my vocation is really clear. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I, I, want, I thought I wanted to be a college campus minister Um, in a setting similar to that and that even if it wasn't a Catholic setting that I would find a setting that I could do something similar. Um, And my husband and I decided we really wanted to move back to Nashville. This is where I'm from. Um, This is where my family lives. And the Diocese of Nashville is very conservative (laughs) and there are not Catholic campus ministry offices quite like that one anywhere here. And there's other campus ministry offices. There's other university chaplaincy spaces, um, but they're not quite the same. They don't carry the same character. Um, and it kind of put me in this space of feeling like I had to choose between hmm. my vocation and my identity and my Catholicism, and I don't want to. Um so it was a blessing and a curse, um, but it serves as a great reminder of kind of the, this is possible. <laughs> this is out there, yeah. you know, and everybody's like, wait, you came out and you worked as an out queer Catholic woman in a campus ministry office at an undergraduate university. I'm like, yeah, I did. <laughs> like I did. And everyone was fine with it, you know. Um yeah, it it gives me a sense of nostalgia because I, like, don't know when or if I'll ever find something like that mm. again. Um, but it was really, really important for me in walking through kind of my own Catholic discernment at the time.
0: Yeah. I, I, I had that experience with my campus ministry in undergrad as well um, at William & Mary in Virginia. It was just a really unique really unique half a campus ministry and um we we succeeded and failed in a number of areas but um when it came to just like solid community building and doing retreats and small groups um during the time I was there that was something that was really strong and and then it was just like the words you said like it was it it created a space for me to say okay it's possible like I can look back and say like it's possible to have solid young adult catholic communities because the moment I left that was gone Mm -hmm. and um and I haven't been able to find it quite the same way since um so it's just interesting to hear you say that because um I feel like I have the same attitude kind of looking back on it now, like I'm glad I had that experience. I'm glad I was formed in that community and told this is possible. And now it's almost part of like what I try to pursue in those spaces now, years later, as like, okay, this is possible. We can do this. Let's organize this young adult group or let's organize some kind of alliance of some sort at this parish or something. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a gift ultimately. Um, Absolutely. But it can be, but the nostalgic feeling, oh, I want to go back, is, uh, is there too. Yeah,
1: I think it's a gift. I don't know what to do with anymore. <laughs> it's kind of like a gift whose function has shifted. And I have not figured out what the new function is yet. Yeah, yeah.
0: Does it at least give you some hope?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's, um, I'm having a, a time trying to figure <laughs> out, like, transposing contexts. So I'm like, this was possible there. I don't want to go back there. Mm-hmm. I want this to be possible here. Uh, how in the world do I get this to be possible here? And part of that for me is I'm from here. I know here. And people here know me. And that makes By it I hear little... you mean Nashville. In Nashville. Okay. And in the Catholic Diocese of Nashville in particular, um, you know, that makes it a little scarier. Um, you know, you it's easier to be a little more brave when you're somewhere where you've been 2 years, you're only going to be here 2 more years and then you can leave. They don't know your family, they don't know you, they don't know your past, you know. Um, it's a little different when it's a little closer to home. But mm. I think that that's why I'm needed here. You know, that's mm. why I chose to come back here. Is if it's if anything, in that direction, is going to happen here, it's got to come from people who are from here, who love this community, who know this community, who have connections here. Um, I just don't know what's going to happen yet.
0: Yeah. So so let's talk about kind of what it means for you to be from here. Were you um, were you born and raised in Nashville?
1: So I was born. And raised in this area. I was born in Nashville, and I grew up um, outside of Nashville, near Ashland City in Cheatham County, um, which is in between Nashville and Clarksville, Tennessee. It's a very rural area. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to elementary and middle school at a Catholic elementary and middle school in Clarksville, and I went to a Catholic high school in Hendersonville, one of the three Catholic high schools in the Nashville Mm -hmm. area. Um I grew up attending a parish in Clarksville and then when I went to high school we transferred to the cathedral downtown here in Nashville. Um my dad worked in Nashville my whole life. Um and my mom's family my mom my mom grew up all over the country, but she spent significant time living in Nashville. Her grandparents lived in Nashville. Her grandparents were from right down the road from where I live. My parents live now in Cheatham county. um her grandparents are buried out there, you know, like I have deep roots here um yeah. so that's a little bit about what it means to be from from here, you know, yeah,
0: well and you don't get a lot of that in Nashville these days. no, you really don't so you're the one of the native unicorns, yeah,
1: everyone's so surprised <laughs> <laughs> I'm like no, i really, really am. <laughs>
0: So, um, so growing up in Nashville, what was, and going to Catholic high school in this area too, um, what was your faith like growing up?
1: I had a very robust faith life growing up. I was a very dedicated Catholic child. Um, so my mother in the past couple of years found my first grade journal, um, and on the first page of the first grade (laughs) journal ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I drew a picture of myself as a Catholic priest. And I said, I want to be the first female Catholic priest. I want to have three daughters and never move out of my parents' house and never get married. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love some of it. those things
1: were not realistic. <laughs> Maybe all of them. Um, but <clears throat> that was, you know, from, I mean, from my mom, my mom cleaned our church on the weekends, and I would hang out with her while she did that as a kid. I mean, four, three and four years old. I would sit on the altar and talk to Mary and Jesus. You know, I loved going to Catholic school. As soon as I could become an altar server, I became an altar server. Mm-hmm. I was a sacristan, which is, like, the higher altar server, you know. Um, a
0: sacristan's more of, like, assistant to the priest is my yeah, experience. You, okay.
1: That's the person who sets up for the Mass, and... Gets the but the
0: chalices um, and and, yeah. and the bowls on the old on the altar yeah, puts out the all the necessary cloth.
1: equipment, gets the books set up with the appropriate readings
0: okay.
1: those kinds of things. Um, I really loved all the smells and bells of Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I you know, I loved praying the Rosary with my family. I uh, loved going to the stations of the cross during Lent. I was really invested in Catholicism and I think, uh, and that bloomed into my high school years. I from my sophomore year in high school I knew I wanted to study theology in college. Um I was really involved in the local Catholic youth retreat program which is called Search here. Um I went through Search. I became um like a lead, a, a student leader in this retreat program. Um I was a Eucharistic minister in high school. Like I was a lector, I was a cantor. I did it all. (laughs) I grew up in church choir, um, you know. And I think a lot of that for me was trying to get as close as possible to something that I knew I could never attain. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: From the age of five, I was told you can't. When When I wrote that page in my first grade journal, my teacher told me, well, that's nice, but you know you can't. And from then on out, I tried to get as close as possible to something that I was told I couldn't have because that's just in my stubborn nature. Um, Yeah, so I had a really robust faith faith life as a kid. Um, I think I was trying to prove that if I was good enough, someone would give me this thing that I was told I couldn't have. Mm.
0: What was so, um, you know, you said you love the smells and bells and you were involved in all these different like, liturgical roles in the Mass. Like, what was it that was so attractive about the Catholic mm-hmm. faith for you growing up?
1: I think it's two things. Um, one, I knew that it was wrong that I was being told that I couldn't have these things. That I, I knew that there was nothing wrong with me that told me that I couldn't have these positions just because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. And... If once I acknowledged to myself that it was wrong, I had to pursue it. You know? Um, and two, I didn't want to be that involved in my faith just to prove someone wrong. There's something about Catholicism that to this day has not let me go as much as I have tried to let it go. Um, you know, like I said, my my senior year in undergrad, I quote unquote, left the church. Um, little did I know that that was not as simple as I thought it would be. Mm. Um, yeah, there's something about Catholicism that kind of won't let go of me. As much of as much of the faith as I have rethought and redefined for myself, um, there is. I don't. I don't know that I believe in essences. I don't like to essentialize things. But there is something. What do you mean by that? I don't. I don't like to try to say that. Any identification, any religion, anything, any person has an essential substance that can be defined because then you get into categorizations. You say
0: mm.
1: there's an essence of a woman and it's attached to certain body parts and then you wind mm. up being trans-exclusionary or, you know, it can get extrapolated. So I'm, I'm always cautious about using the word essence. But okay. there's something about Catholicism that I love. There's something about um, the ritual that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. It's not just motions. It's not just play acting. It's um, it's ingraining uh, belief and spiritual practice into your body with a community. There is something about um, the community and the communal feel of Catholicism um, that is really important to me. And then as I grew in the faith and hit high school and college, I became really invested in um, Catholic social teaching, liberation theology, and um, Catholic anarchism and pacifism that came out of the Catholic worker movement. And those really gripped me. Mm. And I said, if there's room for this in the tradition... There's room for me. Mm. Um, and those are
0: all really major kind of social justice movements in the Catholic
1: Church. Right. You know, they're, they're kind of three distinct and interrelated um, movements and starting around the turn of the 20th century, really, uh-huh. um, where the church, voices in the church came up, usually from the grassroots level, to say no to injustice even when it meant speaking against or beyond what the official church was saying, especially when liberation theology was birthed in, in Latin America. And, um, you know, later there was kind of affirmation of liberation theology from the teaching powers of the church, but it really came out of the people and it really mm-hmm. came out of a kind of a grassroots setting, Um and those movements, and especially with Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement in the church, um, taught me that there is room for disagreement, there is room for a multiplicity of voices, mm. there is room to say no and retain a Catholic identity. Um, and Catholicism has kind of written itself on my my body and on my spirit in a way that I have not been able to let go of um, and I've kind of found that I don't have to cut that piece of myself off, um, as much as I have tried.
0: You know, the more I study Catholic doctrine, a bit, especially as it pertains to homosexuality in the Catechism, like there's, you can look at, you can look at the Catechism the same way you can look at certain books of the Bible and ways things are phrased, and you can very quickly say, okay we're not going to recognize the LGBTQIA plus community. We're we're just like that, that doesn't that's you can read that as this is a choice and this is not something that is normal. And on the flip side, like you were just saying, there are other documents or even paragraphs within those same documents mm-hmm. or verses not too far away from those other verses in those books of the Bible where There are other teachings that you can lean on as well. And it could be compassion, but it could also be, like you just said, like conscience, like the church trusting its members of its body to follow their conscience Mm -hmm. and trust that God is guiding them toward what is his will. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I think that was really formative for me in my undergraduate work, is being taught by some pretty big-name Catholic theologians and ethicists how to really understand and then break down and criticize or reinterpret um, both Catholic documents and the Bible. Hmm. Um, you know, I wrote my undergraduate thesis rethinking Genesis, <laughs> rethinking the creation stories in Genesis and how, on my estimation, if you actually go back to the Hebrew um, you can understand the creation story is not as gendered as it first appears. Um, the you know the first cre- human being was not Adam, a proper name. it was Ha'adam, the earth creature. Um, mm. and gender was or sex was created after the human being. and so it was really essential to human existence. Um, mm. That kind of work for me helped me break down from folks who were teaching me in the tradition ways to question the tradition and that made a big difference.
0: Yeah. What do you remember what what they call what Eve is in the Hebrew?
1: Uh now I'm not gonna <laughs> Okay, sorry. No, <laughs> now the words are not, not gonna come to me. Um <laughs> but,
0: but I'm am curious how that dynamic was portrayed. Yeah, or... so
1: it was kind of, it's kind of like um, the way it breaks down linguistically, there's the first creature and then that creature is divided in two, essentially, and that's when sex or gender is created. So my positing, and based on based on the work of some other scholars, is that it's not too far in left field to imagine that that first creature might be understood from a contemporary context as intersex or genderless, or and what does that mean for representation in the creation narratives Um, And the essence of human beings when they were first created for those folks reading the Bible today. Um, And then as gender was created later, was it created really centered around companionship um, and around a multiplicity of genders coming out of one human essence? Or was it created in this binary complementary system? You know, um, there's ways to (laughs) reinterpret pretty much anything you want. And uh, that was the work I was trying to do.
0: That's awesome. So you mentioned earlier, um, kind of having a bit of a struggle with whether or not you were going to continue to go to Catholic Church your senior year of undergrad. Mm-hmm. What um, what kind of spurred that, and what was what did that year end up being like? What did that look like?
1: Yeah. So um, in the fall of twenty fifteen, which was the beginning of my senior year in undergrad. My partner moved to St. Louis to be with me while I finished my last year. Um, and we, so he started going to mass with me. He was he was Catholic, um, but he was not a cradle Catholic. He was a convert. Um,
0: is this who, is this your partner now? Yes. Okay. This is
1: my husband now. His name is Jay. That hey, might Jay. help. <laughs> <laughs> so Jay and I were going to mass together um, at the Giant Cathedral on my undergraduate campus which I loved deeply. I was in Mass Choir, very involved. It was great. And um, around that time, maybe in the first month of that school year, or the second month of that school year, uh, Pope Francis issued a statement saying something to the effect of trans people are as disordered to nature as nuclear weapons. Um,
0: that was 2014? 2015. 2015.
1: Oh. Yeah. Um, some, I, I won't say that's a direct quote, but that was the okay. essence of what the statement that was put out. And it was after having a trans person come stay at the Vatican for a week. like, mm. um, And that was just kind of a tipping point for us, especially for my partner, where he said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I can't. This is not a safe space for me, and I can't keep, coming to a table where I want a seat when I'm not welcome here. Um, I can't keep shoving myself in. So we both stopped going to mass for a while. And one of my mentors from this campus ministry office mentioned to me that he and his wife uh, sometimes go to Roman Catholic mass and sometimes they were attending an independent Catholic parish I said, independent Catholicism, what is that? That sounds (laughs) like it's counterintuitive. That
0: sounds bad. (laughs) Uh,
1: Right. It sounds like I shouldn't do that. (laughs) Um, And so independent Catholicism is a not super well-known movement Mm -hmm. um, globally, but especially in the United States, it's not very well-known, of a variety of different groups and denominations that... Claim the identity of Catholicism strongly. They say we're not, not Catholics. We're not Protestants. Essentially, we are Catholics, but we do not ascribe to the authority of the Pope. And we usually they practice open sacraments, meaning anybody can receive communion, anybody can be baptized. They're LGBTQIA affirming. They allow women to be ordained. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they allow queer folks to be ordained, etc. Um, so in St. Louis or just outside of St. Louis in the county, there is a parish um, that's part of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, um, which is an independent Catholic denomination. Um. Um, so I said, well, we'll come with you one time and. <laughs> um, so we did, and it was really great. You know, it they were borrowing space in a, uh, I don't even remember what denomination, but a Protestant church. Um, so they had Saturday evening services, and mm. it was, the parish maybe had 50 members total, and on a good day in attendance, 25 at Mass, mm. um, and most of them were over the age of 50. Mm. Um it was a lot of older queer folks, um, but it gave us space to cling to some bits of Catholicism and to feel the pain we were feeling, essentially, to grieve. Um, so we did that for the rest of the year, pretty much. Um yeah. That was a really great experience. We owe a really great debt to that parish. It's it's called St. Clare and Francis Parish, and it's part of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, the bishop of this region of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, I believe. Um, it is the pastor there, you know, so it was a really great experience. Um, I had some connections from my undergraduate university there, so that made a big difference. Um, but there was something that kind of launched my husband away from Catholicism. He like transitioned through that. And then he said, I don't really need Catholicism anymore. And I'm okay with that. Um, so he's kind of moved in a very different direction. Yeah. Um, but for me, I really appreciated that space. And yet it wasn't, I couldn't get over feeling like I wasn't really being Catholic. You know what mm. I'm saying? And I wasn't the only one in that space who had those wrestled with those feelings, you know, it, there because were you
0: were worshiping separately from the broader community or yes. something? Okay.
1: Yeah, it felt like we were playing at being Catholic and not really being Catholic. And that made it difficult. And uh, for all of my like cognitive awareness of this is real Catholicism, if you say it's real Catholicism, that's the whole point of this movement. Um, they don't have the cornerstone on Catholicism. They can't tell, you know, there was something in me that still didn't feel like this isn't it. So we moved to Chicago for a year after I graduated. I started seminary in Chicago. Um, There was not an independent Catholic parish near where we lived or practicing regularly. So we just didn't practice for a year. Uh When I came home at Christmas, I went to mass with my mother. Um, But we didn't practice for a year. And that was the year that we were in the process of planning our wedding. Um, So we had to figure out what to do about that. Because when we got engaged, we were both practicing Catholics and were fairly certain that we would have a Catholic mass for our wedding, and um, that shifted. So that was kind of a big deal for us, and that's why we wound up having a friend officiate our wedding. We had a beautiful wedding in a national forest um, with a friend officiating, and it was everything we could have wanted. There was probably something in the back of my brain that was still missing you know that Catholic mass component, yeah. but um, I wrote our liturgy, so it was pretty Catholic nonetheless. <laughs> we washed each other's feet, so oh wow, um, yeah. Wow. But we didn't practice for a year, and then I transferred schools. We moved back to Nashville, and um, being back here, being near my family. Jay really having having moved to his own spiritual space, so our our kind of paths were a little less wedded. We we had a little more freedom from each other. Um, Our wedding had passed, so the pressure of that was kind of off because we got married over the summer before we moved here. Mm -hmm. Um, I had this urge to go back to Mass. And I spent months and months and months saying, okay, this Sunday I'm going to go and then Sunday rolled around and I yeah. did not go. Um and I I I do now attend mass most weekends um. at a local parish. Um that being said there's always a you know there's always a moment where it's like I attend here but I don't really want to be a parishioner because if I'm a parishioner you'll know me and if you know me it's only so long before you reject me. Mm. Uh, because I refuse to be in a space where I'm not out. I refuse. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how that journey has gone. I consider myself a practicing Catholic. Um, that being said, there's only so far that can go. Um, it's not so much a matter of being closeted as it is a matter of allowing myself to get the spiritual fulfillment I need and... Not forcing myself to go any further than I need to at the moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What? Um, so, um, perhaps outside the Catholic setting, then, where are you finding community and uh, spiritual growth here in Nashville? Lately?
1: Yeah. The Divinity School is where I would say. You know, I just moved back here, so it's like a big transition process. And I came into a cohort that had already been together for a year because an MDiv is three years. I'd missed one. Um, but I was so welcomed and engulfed into my cohort. This, this I mean, we're now going into our third year of our MDivs, but the second year cohort. Um, I found so much community that I was lacking. And that's part of why I left Chicago. I wasn't experiencing the community that I needed up there. And community is really important to me. Um, you know, shared meals and even getting a cup of coffee with a friend for me can be a spiritual practice, especially when I am feeling spiritually deprived from my tradition. And um, I have lived an intentional community in two different ways in my life. And one of them was an intentional Catholic community, and that's where me and my husband met. We met... Um, through an intentional community and farm in West Virginia that is Catholic and is a nonprofit organization. And um, those experiences of really kind of table fellowship and and shared time and conversation um, and recreation with other people is really important to me. uh, Because that's where I really think I felt my faith lived out. Um, That's where I first learned about liberation theology and Catholic social teaching and saw those kinds of concepts put into work. Um, so I, I feel that at the divinity school, uh, I have several friends who I grew up with and went to high school with, and some who I went to college with who now live back here. And when we do find time to get together, uh, it carries a lot of that same feeling of what I, what I'm missing in terms of spiritual fulfillment and community, um, and I get it with my family. I, My husband and I are very close with my parents, and I have one older brother who lives in another state um, and is about to be married. So I'm about to have a sister-in-law, and um, we're really, really close. So again, when we all get together, and there's Catholic overtones with my family and with sure. a lot of my friends. Um, but I think also in at the Divinity School, I feel in some ways, more Catholic than I do in other contexts because it's such a Protestant space. I feel like I have to show up as Catholic. (laughs) So part of what made me want to cling to my Catholicism is going to two Protestant, well, a Protestant seminary and then a Protestant-centric divinity school and saying, no, wait, I am Catholic. I want to cling to this. Um, You can't say that. Only I can say that about the church because it's mine. Um, And so that has actually given me a sense of fulfillment, like spiritual fulfillment and exploration, is being in a space where I get to show up as distinctive as Catholic.
0: And and that's been my experience as well in um, studying also at Vanderbilt Divinity is the the number of times in the, the classroom where a Catholic theologian is brought into the discussion or the assigned reading that week, or we talk about something in early christian communities and that and creeds that are still the catholic creeds that we say today in church um so yeah there is that um that impetus of the well the impetus of of showing up and being like yes this is yes this is the catholic thing we do today or no people don't really do that today anymore um (laughs) for sure i had someone ask me when we um i think maybe a month or two after i started studying there as to And it never even, like, really occurred to me, but she asked, do you feel like a minority in this space? Like, do you feel like you're, like, on the outs? And my response was, like, not really. Like, I still feel like I have a place in this conversation. I have, like, perspective to bring, but I don't feel like I am being... Um, I don't feel like marginalized from this group. Like I'm not included. Right. Um, like I still feel like I'm part of something. What's the, what has that experience been like for you?
1: Yeah, I've had a very similar experience. And I, for me, it's there's kind of a caveat in two ways. I think part of why maybe why I haven't felt so on the outs is because so many people at the Divinity School are queer. It's like spaces where we might be different. We actually align on this other identification. Yeah. Um, And I think when it comes down to kind of Protestant-Catholic relations, which is so much of what my experience at the Divinity School comes down to, I have two reactions. There are a select number of people who carry a lot of misconceptions about Catholicism and will just kind of spout them. And then you have to say, that's not actually what's happening. Like, let's talk about that. And it turns, for me, it turns out to be a really fulfilling moment, um... But most of the time, people are curious. So my experience has been that a lot of my classmates saying, well, I don't want to tokenize you or offend you or make you feel like I'm putting you on the spot as the one Catholic person in the room, but this is what I've heard or understood about Catholicism or I don't really understand this about Catholicism. Can you tell me more about it? And that has been really fulfilling for me for two reasons. Um, I mean, just hearing genuine curiosity from someone in such an open and vulnerable way is so touching. And I love interreligious dialogue and two, or interdenominational dialogue maybe is more appropriate. And two, um, I, it, and maybe this is just a little egotistical of me, but it puts me in a position where as someone who in Catholic context, I am usually the marginalized. I am a queer woman, I have fought my way to the center, but for all intents and purposes, and not intended to be in the center of the Catholic conversation. Um, But in the Divinity School, I'm posited to be not the expert, but the knowledgeable practitioner that I know myself to be. My expertise is trusted, my background is trusted, my experience is validated. Um, In a way that it is not in Catholic context. And that makes a big difference for me. And that's why I enjoy being there, I think.
0: Mm. That sounds like a really healthy space, then.
1: Yeah.
0: What I'm hearing is a bit of a similarity in terms of maybe the questions that people ask of you, both about, like, your faith and your sexuality. Um, You know, people that are looking to understand something that they know about but don't have a personal experience in or of, what have been? What have been some good questions that you've gotten? Like, as far as people, because um, I think there's a lot of I think people want to know more about a faith that they haven't heard of or about um, a sexual identity that they don't understand. But it's awkward. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are topics that people don't that we're told growing up to not talk about. Anyways, so what have been some what have been some good curious questions that I, that have been that have been respectful and mm-hmm. helpful for you?
1: I think uh, I've gotten a lot and I'll try to remember some, but I think what people are really trying to get at is who are you? And can I relate to you? And I need you to tell me that I can or how I can. And um, yeah. I mean, the question I really get most often is, how are you How are you, a queer woman who wants to go into ministry Catholic? Like, people don't get it. They're like, <laughs> I know you. I have talked to you. I know your politics. I know how you show up in the classroom. How are you still Catholic? You mean that you're, like, post-Catholic, right? Like, you've left, like, you're done. Mm-hmm. And that's an opportunity for me to explain to them all the traditions in Catholicism that I love, to talk to them about liberation theology, to talk to them about... Catholic pacifism to talk to them about the sacramentality of Catholicism and the ritual and, and how much I love it. And I mean the other one I get is what what are you what are you gonna do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we everyone in graduate school I feel like gets that. Right.
1: But I get a particularly <laughs> quizzical, like, okay, so let's check all the boxes. You're Catholic, you're a woman, you're queer, you're liberal and what are you going to do? <laughs> um, so recently I've started to consider, I think this is maybe what I want to do, um, taking my MDiv and after graduation trying to find a job um, doing some form of counseling, perhaps in a nonprofit setting, using my MDiv. And then after one to two years beginning um, maybe an MSW Uh, A master's of social work, maybe getting um, a non-master's degree related licensure to be a therapist. But I think I want to be some form of a private therapist or counselor. Mm. So I'll be looking into more of those programs and seeing if a licensure without another master's degree or if a master's degree is the best route for me. And um, see what I can find in terms of jobs that allow me to kind of get some practical work related to that. Um, Before I get another degree or licensure, just using my MDiv, Mm. Um, which there's lots of stuff you can do with an MDiv because you have a background in pastoral care. um, And because I have a background in campus ministry, that might line me up with working with hopefully some young folks.
0: Sure. I continue to equate the path of of graduate studies, but I think just like the path of life in general to like to kayaking (laughs) and how when you're in a kayak, you're paddling. Um, on both sides of the kayak itself and so you're alternating between paddling on the right and paddling on the left and one way kind of pulls you to the left and one way pulls you to the right but ultimately like the nose of the kayak kind of starts to center Mm -hmm. in the direction that you're trying to go
1: even though you think you're turning left even
0: though you keep having to pull on both sides and so i think it's this like i find it as a helpful image because it's like there's always going to be these pulls on both sides of like things that you love to do, but they are kind of pointing you in a path that when you actually look at the nose of the kayak is like starts to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, so in the meantime, before you go um, out into the real world, what are some things that you're working on now that excite you either in graduate school or, or outside of class?
1: Yeah. Um, I am going to be TAing for a field education um, part of my curriculum. I'm taking an extra semester and I'm going to uh, be a teaching assistant in the fall for an ethicist, which I'm excited about because I've done some exploring through the curriculum of um, other parts of my skills. I worked in an office on campus, I've got the campus ministry background. I worked in a student center, kind of got a different part of the higher education background. I'm interested to see what teaching in higher education looks like, so I can kind of narrow in more on what my skills are and how they're best used. Um, I am, like you said earlier, I'm, I haven't quite honed in on precisely what I want to do, but I'm considering addressing, maybe in an ethnographic fashion, maybe not, um, the stories of queer Catholics, particularly, I think, queer Catholic women Um, because I know so many of them, (laughs) in my thesis work. Um, And I am uh, going to be an intern for the um, Vanderbilt Divinity School Public Theology and Racial Justice Collaborative Summer Institute this summer. Um, We've talked a lot about queerness, a little bit about gender, but I really believe in acknowledging intersectionality, so the ways in which people's different identifiers, including race and social class um, and gender and sexuality, all play into how we show up in the world and um, how I show up in my academic work. So I'm interested to see both what I can learn because I have a lot to learn at this institute and to contribute to the community that's kind of being formed there. Um, And outside of that, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> There's okay. a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. It's a
0: lot of good projects. Well, thank you so much for yeah. um for sharing your stories and um, and your your life on this program. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's so <laughs> nice to be asked your story. You uh-huh. know, like that really matters to people.
0: Yeah, I think it does.
1: That's a pastoral act.
0: Thank you again to Maria for sharing her experiences with us. Through our conversation, Maria referenced a few terms and resources, which we have linked in the episode description. This episode of Out Loud was carefully handcrafted by yours truly, but it would not have been possible without our editor-in-chief's fierce commitment to deadlines. Thank you, Meg McKellen. To learn more about Out Loud, follow us on social media. Our handle is Out Loud Stories. That's one word, Out Loud Stories. Or keep it simple, keep it old school, and visit us at our website at outloudstories.com. Leave us a comment or send us an email and let us know how you related to Maria's story. That concludes our show this week. We'll be back in two weeks when you'll hear from Kelsey Davis.
1: My faith and sexuality were, and they and they still are, absolutely inseparable. Like, I, I haven't known a minute without Jesus and without,
0: like, the intimacy of a woman's love in my life. That's all for now. Please share our show with someone who you think it may help. I'm Greg Thompson. Thanks for listening.